At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Have you ever tried a Kind Bar? You might have seen them in your local grocery store, coffee shop, or gym. They make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients that you can recognize and pronounce. And if you're ready to try some tasty and healthy snacks, if by any chance you have not already had a Kind Bar, which I sort of find hard to believe, uh, Kind has a special deal for you. You can try 10 Kind Bars for free, and all you have to do is pay shipping. When you order the sample box, you'll also get to try Kind's Snack Club, where you receive monthly snacks at a discount and get members-only bonuses. You shouldn't have to choose between your health and taste when it comes to snacking. That is why both award-winning chefs and nutritionists love and recommend Kind Bars. I have tried all 10 of the snack sample box, and I love the roasted jalapeno. Um, I have a sweet tooth, but not always, especially during the day when, you know, you should be eating lunch or something. I, I don't want something super sugary. And Kind Bars have a sweet and salty line and a sort of, uh, you know, savory flavors, uh, including, like I said, roasted jalapeno and almond and also Korean chili. If you're a more traditional snack bar person, they got you too. Uh, dark chocolate nuts, uh, cranberry, sea salt, all those good flavors. To pick up your free sample box, and I am going to tell you again, it is a free sample box. This is free snacks. Go to kindsnacks.com slash friends. That's kindsnacks.com slash friends. We want to thank Kind for sponsoring the podcast. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you help support this podcast. There is no reason for you not to go to kindsnacks.com slash friends. Please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. This week's show is a live show from the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin. I believe I say all of this stuff again to the live audience. This introduction serves mainly to let you know why there's, you know, applause and some laughter and stuff uh, in the middle of the conversation. It wasn't a cozy studio, it was an auditorium, and I really wish you had been there. Next time. I'm Anna Marie Cox. Uh, and on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I am very happy to welcome you to the seventh annual Texas Tribune Festival and this live recording of Crooked Medias with Friends Like These. My guest is Michael Steele, who I am sure you nerds recognize. <laughs> this is like the nerdiest version of South by Southwest. I love it so much. <laughs> Uh, he's on Morning Joe. He's on MSNBC all the time. He is the host of Steel and Unger. Yep. Uh, and he is also the former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland. And also, this is actually almost hard to believe, former chairman of the Republican National Committee. Yeah. Back in the day. Wah, wah. Wah, wah, wah. I am supposed to ask you to silence your phones unless you are paying attention to the TCU-Oklahoma State game. 
in which case, just let me know if they win. So just get them. Um, oh, but seriously, silence your phones. The hashtag, if you want to tweet, is hashtag TribFest17. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Anna Marie Cox. Michael is... At Michael Steele. Michael Steele, both very straightforward. Uh, this will be about an hour long, and I was actually informed just before we got up here that we can have an audience Q&A, so we're going to do that uh, about 15 minutes before yeah. cool. we're done. So, with friends like these. Uh, Michael is a genuine friend like this. We've known each other for a little while. And he's a particularly good guest for the show, which is about, as I hope you guys know, uncomfortable conversations and messy coalitions. Uh, I think he... That's been the story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> and I also thought of you because you said something last fall that I will now have to read about Trump's nomination. Mm -hmm. Trump's nomination will force the party to have an uncomfortable conversation with itself. And that, by nominating him, the conversation will happen sooner rather than later. Yeah. 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 It's been a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> now, was it so uncomfortable both parties just left? Or did it happen? Did someone, like, bang their shoe on the table? Because I don't know. Because if, if what you're talking about, I mean, we should be straightforward here. You're talking about race. No, I'm not just talking about race. I'm, okay. talking, about, I'm talking about everything that the party has... Uh, espoused as a value or principle or concept, construct, uh, philosophy, policy. Um, what folks fail to appreciate um, is in the post-Reagan era, and I talk a lot about the post-Reagan Republican Party is not the Reagan Republican Party, and is not the party that Nixon uh, used to execute his Southern strategy in 1968. It's not the party that Goldwater uh, took the mantle of uh, uh, when he ran for president. So there are these, these periods of time where things happen that largely were left unresolved. And for a lot uh, of that lack of resolution, you saw it occurred post-Reagan. And whether it was on big issues, as we saw play it out with health care and war and peace questions, or smaller questions revolving around states' rights. So, for example, uh, when uh, Terry Schiavo, the young woman who was on life support in Florida uh, during the presidency of George Bush and the governorship of, of uh, his brother, um, Jeb Bush, the party took a decidedly non-Republican view on that Jeb situation. Jeb Bush like, flew to the bedside of this Flew to woman. the bedside. They were forcing this family uh, to keep this woman alive when her husband, who had all the rights uh, to, to make that decision, even over her parents, yeah. um, knew his wife and knew what she would want, which would be she did not want to suffer, and that... Um, as painful as it was for him, he had to make that conscious decision on behalf of both of them uh, to take off life support. But you saw the United States Senate 
<laughs> you saw the governorship, and these were Republicans. And fundamentally, the one thing the Republicans up to that moment had always articulated was that's the last place government needed to be, was between a husband and a wife in a life and death situation or conversation, between a family and the doctors treating the patient. So there are little things like that, that at least fissures, cracks, that began to develop over time within the party. And Donald Trump really kind of, for some people, was the Band-Aid for that. But like a Band-Aid, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a cut that goes from your forearm to your fingertip. Uh, and these, these unresolved, undealt with matters are, are what you're seeing play themselves out, which is why you're beginning to see, I believe, a, a splitting of the party. There is a decided Trump wing. We don't know what that ultimately will become. And then there's everybody else. And uh, that's the fight. If I may offer my own metaphor, I think that you're correct in diagnosing the fissures in the party over these issues that they they kind of want to just ignore their, um, I'll go ahead and say the word hypocrisy, um, or at least lack of uh, clarity about certain issues. It's Uh, hypocrisy. No, it is. There's a high level of hypocrisy, and and some of it is just stupid. Yeah, or inconsistencies. (laughs) Right, Um, right. It seems like Trump is like the orange putty that's being oozed into these cracks and I think perhaps expanding and making the cracks worse. Well, there's, I think there is truth to that um, to some degree. Um, there are certainly those who have been very, very strong supporters of Trump who are, you know, like there with syringe, like pumping it in, right? <laughs> uh, and then there are others who are sitting there with their spoons trying to scoop it out. Uh, and unfortunately, the scoopers are losing to the pumpers. And are you a scooper or a pumper? <laughs> that sounds like I, well, a, a, a ter- bad, well, in terms, bad, bad In terms of the party that I joined, but... <laughs> right. in terms of the party that I joined at 17 um, and um, have been a part of for low these 40 years, um, I, I consider myself to be a scooper. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I'd like to think that I've got a pretty big-ass scoop. So uh, having run the party and having uh, been a part of its, of its veins and, you know, uh, the core of what it is for a very, very long time, both as an activist and a grassroots guy, as a leader in the party, um, I don't recognize it. So for me, it's very frustrating uh, I'm not in getting into all this. I don't know how far I can go with language here. I don't know you what kind of podcast you say have. whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> Thank you. I'm free. Um, <laughs> it's podcasts are not regulated by the government. Bingo. Yeah. You want to get down? Hey, my kind kneel. of structure. If you want to kneel and raise a fist? You can do that too. Oh, excellent. Oh no, we'll take a knee, baby. Yeah. We'll take a knee. Um, but. We'll get to that. I, I, the um, no, I, I just I can't countenance the bullshit anymore. It's just not. It's not what I spent many many days, hours, lifetimes. It feels like out there trying to engage the public. Sometimes a very resistant, oftentimes hostile public to this idea of of um, freedom and independence, um, the value. Uh, of 
of the proposition that we are all created equal. So when I see the party stand in the way of justice, for example, ignoring the Voter right, Voting Rights Act or uh, not really appreciating the core of uh, what Black Lives Matter is all about. Now, you can get into the politics of it, but I t- as I told one group... But what that the I, phrase means. Right, I, I told one group, have you ever thought about what they're saying, what that means? Why would you choose that term? I mean, stop and think about it. You know, of all the radical things you can do if you really want to go piss people off, to say that somebody's life matters is really not the way to piss people off, I think. I mean, what it does is it raises consciousness, hopefully. So there are little (laughs) things like that. And as we see... It it says more about you than them if it pisses you off. Right, and and, exactly. And, and, And to be honest, it has not raised consciousness in either political party quite to be rather frank about it, um, both political party have an interest in the institutions and structures that they've created. We saw that resistance in the last campaign um, in terms of what uh, Bernie Sanders ultimately represented for many, many uh, liberals and progressives in the Democratic Party. Just as we saw uh, in the Republican Party many, many years ago what a Ronald Reagan represented to a generation of young people such as myself at the time, um, and, and so these transformational moments for me are very, very important that you pay attention to because the one thing about voters is that they tell you what they think, they tell you how they feel, and if you shut up long enough and listen, you actually may learn what they want. Mm-hmm. And that's not been part of what we've been about, certainly something I tried to do when I was chairman uh, with mixed success, uh, but it was... Um, it is not something that uh, people actually want to get done right now. And healthcare is just the tip of the iceberg of that discussion. You mentioned the Voting Rights Act. Uh, you and I had coffee, I think it might have been the day after the election. Oh, yeah, we did. So let me tell you about that, okay? <laughs> let me tell you about This is my girl right here. This, uh, I, she knows I will walk from here to New York for her. So, so I'm up in New York doing uh, post-election and she's in New York doing post-election, yeah. doing the same thing, right? Uh, and so we kind of cross paths, and she's like, can I talk to you? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, sure, let's go get a cup of coffee. So we went downstairs to the Starbucks, and we're sitting at this little table, and all this hustle and bustle is going by. And I had to tell you, I never told you this part of it, for me. It would just became like a little cocoon where it's just me and Anna just kind of talking about what just happened. Because I was just as freaked out as she was. I was like, oh, I don't know. Uh, this wasn't, I didn't think this was going to play out this way. But she was just of, of this mind and in this state. And I just remember just holding, we were holding each other's hands and we're just kind of looking at each other. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And it was, and it well. has. <laughs> well, well, you know. Yeah, there's some things where you can say not so okay, but I think for me, the okay is not just, um, you know, the things that we want to happen, all right? It's also the things that we are surprised and happy to have happened. So for me, for example, the fact that many voices have begun to express, you know, their sense of concern about either policy, direction of the country, things like, this is a level of engagement we hadn't seen in a long while. And so for me, that's a good thing. It really genuinely is. And so that's, 
that's when I say it's going to be okay. As long as we, the people, remember that we actually control this ish, that this is our stuff, at the end of the day, we're going to be okay. I've never, in all my time in a political party, work in politics, um, and and learning this game and being a part of it, I never ceded power and control to any institution or any individual because that power that I have is given to me by the Constitution, it's given to me by my God, and damn it, you're not going to get it and shape it and do what you want with it. So that's the fight I still fight for. You know, it's the sort of the Malcolm X nature of... Michael Steele. Yes, you have said you're more Malcolm than Martin, which I also want to get to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's no accident, actually, that I, as the white liberal, was the one freaking out. Because I'll tell you, my, my friends that are people of color, mm-hmm. they're the ones like, honey, like this, this surprised you? Yeah, right. Really? Right. Like you were shocked? Um, I was talking to one woman about it, and uh, we talked about the 77,000 votes that right. could have made a difference for Hillary. And she said, you're never going to get the votes of black people by telling them that if they don't vote, a racist will win. I mean... Should have called me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, could have told you that yeah. one. <laughs> oh, no, a racist will win. What, how different will that be? Oh, you know? right, right. It's like, uh, how old is the country? What? Yeah. What are you saying? What? So, yeah. yeah. So, well, but yeah. and I do think that um, when I so when I read your quote about the uncomfortable conversation, I really went to race because for me that's the story of the country. If not, it's the it's the original sin of America, um, and it seems to be a thread that just goes through all of the things that we are experiencing right now. Yeah, it's the continuing sin of yeah. America. Yeah, and and um, look, the fact of the matter is. I remember having conversations with folks in Washington after the election of Barack Obama. And we were in this post-racial era. (laughs) I was like, really? I know some people still trying to get a house in this post-racial era, and it's not working out so well for them. Um, And and we kind of deluded ourselves into believing that, okay, so we had... We had uh, Dr. King, we had the March on Washington, we had the great speech, I Have a Dream, and I have a a placard of it in my home. Um, and, you know, uh, you know there, it's great to see, you know, all these people of different colors moving into my neighborhood. All right? So this is the level of, of dumbing down ourselves about race. Meanwhile... Uh, I'm telling my sons, look, when you go out with your white friends tonight and you get pulled over and there's three white boys and you in the car, you're the most dangerous person in that car to the cop who pulls you over. When you're driving by yourself, when you get stopped, be sure to roll down all the windows, turn the interior light on and put your hands at 10 and 2 and say, yes, sir, no, sir. And then whatever moves you make, you make sure you telegraph and tell the officer exactly what you're about to do. And, of course, my millennial sons looked at me like, yeah, right, because they've never had the experience of racism because it's gone underground, baby. It's so so much cleaner and smoother and neat. They're wearing izods and loafers now. They're not wearing hoods. We saw that in Charlottesville. So when my son got pulled over last year, at 2 a.m. on Route 301, which is a very dark road, 
And the cop comes up to the window. He told me later, he said, I forgot everything you told me to do. I was scared to death. And what does that say when a six foot four, 200 plus pound African-American male of 25 years of age is afraid when he gets pulled over by a cop in 2017 or 2016? What does that say? And so that's, that reality is still out there. We just don't want to talk about it. We don't want to confront it. We don't want to deal with it. We elected a black president all as well. We had the March on Washington. We got the Civil Rights Act. We got the, the, the Voting Rights Act all as well. Well, if you want to check out how segregated America is today, go to church this Sunday. If you want to check out how we still self-segregate and how we still deal with what we deal with or don't deal with, look at the neighborhood you shop in. Give you another example more uh, on a, from a political side. So when I ran for the U.S. Senate in uh, 2006, I'm sitting Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, run for the U.S. Senate, open seat. So at some point we were going to do a poll. And I was sitting there thinking about this. I said, I know Maryland. See, a lot of people think because Maryland's in the north. No, baby, we're below the Mason-Dixon line. Maryland's a southern state. You know, they may try to do northern things, but they have southern attitudes. So I want to know what's going on. So I asked the guy at the pollster, I said, I just want two questions on the, on the, on the poll. That's all. And he was like, what? I said, well, the first question I want is, would you vote for an African-American for the United States Senate? Okay. Second question right after that one is, would your neighbor vote for an African-American for the mm. United States Senate? Answers came back. 74% would vote for an African-American for the United States Senate. 43% of their neighbors would. Mm. So what neighborhood do you live in? That's America. You know, can't criticize it, hate it understand it for what it is, and then figure out, okay, what do we do about it? FrameBridge is the easiest way to custom frame your favorite art and photos without ever leaving your house, which of course is a bonus for those of us that don't really like leaving our homes. But their simple online ordering process, you can order a fully customized piece in minutes. Here is how it works. You go to framebridge.com. You upload your photo from your computer or directly from Instagram. Or if you have a physical item, they will provide a secure prepaid packaging so you can mail it to them for free. You preview your photo online in any of their many, many frame styles. You choose your favorite or you get free help from their talented designers. I have done both of these methods. I have gotten a bunch of Instagram photos framed for my best friend. And also I have used FrameBridge to frame, uh, I've talked about it before, a signed uh, picture and letter from Obama that... I think the boys at PSA may have had something to do with uh, my getting that. It was a congratulations for my wedding, which as far as I know, Obama does not personally know about, but maybe, who knows? Anyway, the expert team at FrameBridge will custom frame your item in days, not weeks or months, and deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. And the best part is instead of hundreds of dollars you pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. And my listeners get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when you use code FRIENDS. Framebridge even offers a happiness guarantee. If for any reason you aren't 100% satisfied, they will make it right. 
again, I have to say I've used sort of both kinds of the FrameBridge ordering, both a physical object that I sent to them and also the Instagram uh, connection. And both turned out great. I am so happy uh, with them. And it actually makes me a little sad. I don't have a lot of wall space in this apartment, so I'm not going to be able to use them very much. Instead, I think I'm probably going to be giving a lot of FrameBridge gifts because it's that easy and relatively inexpensive. And it doesn't look inexpensive, so no one needs to know except for all my friends that are listening to the podcast. Anyway, if you want to do like I do, go to framebridge.com and use promo code FRIENDS to save an additional 15% off your first order. Again, that's framebridge.com, promo code FRIENDS. Let's get to the what do we do about it because you we brought up take a knee. You said you would take a knee. This moment that happened with Colin Kaepernick that seems to be just, you know, domino effect in the rest of our culture that the president, for some fucking oh, reason... I had no idea. I don't know, like... <laughs> I got up and got on the plane this morning. I said, what the fuck? Yeah. Anna's going to ask me about this shit today. You know what's funny is that um, he actually did own a football team, right? Yeah. Trump did. A really terrible football team. And and he recruited Doug Flutie as the quarterback. So I don't think he has any room to talk about, like, what makes a good football owner. But anyway, so Trump said this thing about sons of a bitches um, on the field. Um, watching the reaction to this on, over t- on Twitter and elsewhere, do you think that Trump may have sort of baited black America a little like into a fight that he doesn't realize is happening? No. Because I think I, what I see is some people that I might not have originally thought were going to get involved in this right. all of a sudden... I don't think he was baiting in that. Well, I don't think he was intentionally baiting. No. He's just like fucking. He was, he, this man was riffing. Yeah. He was in a room full of people showing him love. And he was in the moment. He, he was, was feeling in his Alabama. Groove, and he was reliving campaign stuff in his head. And it, at one point last night, I was watching the president in Alabama. And it hit me. This is his presidency. Wake up, folks. (laughs) What we saw last night, and if you didn't see it, it is an hour and a half long. The president freelanced, riffed for an hour and a half. I mean, headlines today couldn't help but say it was a rambling speech because that's what it was. It was was barely a speech. Right. It was just kind of like, okay, this just came in my head. There's no gate. Just come on out. It, he really makes more sense if you think of him as like wearing a beret and like a black turtleneck and like a beat poet kind yeah, of. Yeah, right. You could. And I'm sitting here and I'm watching this and I'm going, this is his presidency. This is it. And if you, if you he is his most presidential when he's doing that. That's how he's redefined the presidency. I asked a question um, on our radio show, Steel and Unger. Um, would the president be changed by the presidency or would he change the presidency itself? I think we have an idea what the answer is t- to that. And for me, I saw it last night. That was the presidency of Donald Trump. He was um, more concerned 
about calling out Colin Kaepernick than Vladimir Putin. He was more concerned about uh, chastising his cabinet members for endorsing someone other than the person he endorsed who's going to get his ass kicked on Tuesday. Then he was with actually endorsing the person. Like he was like more concerned with chastising people for endorsing more than he was for like arguing for for his own guy. Who, by the way, uh, Senator Strange. If I'm Senator Strange, I'm saying, well, that this was a strange event, (laughs) and I really don't need the president's help anymore because at one point the president even goes off and he says. Well, you know, if the other guy wins, I'll be down here to campaign hard for him, too. He also said I may have made a mistake. He's like, I may have made a mistake. It's like, right. Yeah, then he comes out later on and he says, well, yeah, I made a mistake for supporting Strange. I mean, okay, so I... Well, you just spent an hour and a half in his backyard. All right. So this, this, (laughs) I guess the point is, and and, and I, I tell this to, you know, my colleagues at MSNBC, and I certainly say it to a lot of my political um, friends and and uh, foes, not in a negative sense, but you know, we go back and forth. Stop going down the rabbit hole. Stop. Accept it for what it is. Your eyes aren't lying to you. Your ears are not lying to you. This is it. <laughs> it does not get better. All this, well, he gave a great speech and then the UN happens. Oh, he showed some compassion, and then he screws it up before he even completes the sentence. So stop. Because I think, and it kind of goes back to our initial conversation in that, uh, at 30 Rock. You got to let some of this go. Because there's nothing you can do about him. It's like at a certain point, if you're a parent and you see your kids as a fuck up, you're just like, okay, I just... <laughs> As long as I don't get a call okay. from a police department or an emergency room, I'm good. Because there's only so much you can do. Okay, but there are parents involved here, and it's the courts and the Congress. There is something you can do. So, yeah, let's... let's I, I, the Congress? Well, touche. Um, what I guess... I mean, we're, we're talking about things you can do, right? Um, it, I, at times, get into an existential depression because <laughs> I do think this is it. This is him. This is it. Not going to change. Nothing going to change. Um, I should just uh, go off my diet and, you know, adopt all the pets. And <laughs> when the nukes come from North Korea, I will at least be happy. Um, <laughs> Like, um, you know, you're uh, given hope by the activism that's cropped up. Yeah. I assume, like, you mean things like the Women's March. The Women's yeah. March? I, like, you know, you are still a Republican. Are you sure? Yes, okay, I am. Okay. I am. That's how crazy this has become, is that, <laughs> I mean, we've come so far. Look, I tell you, you know how crazy it is? One of, the, one of the wildest, most exciting, and honestly weirdest moments I had in the 2016 campaign was when I was at the Democratic National Convention. Yes, they let me in. And well, you can pass these days. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Got the label. And I'm, sitting, I'm talking to these five women from California, and they're telling me, 
oh yeah, we, we're, you know, at least three of them were Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump supporters. <laughs> Let that sink in for a moment. That is a real voter. That is someone, and that's how this thing has come so far around. But there were fewer of them than there were Clearly Hillary not. McCain voters. No, statistically, there were fewer of them than there were Hillary McCain voters. Clearly not. Donald Trump is president. Well, I'm just saying that... See, but this is, see, see this is, can I, this is illustrative of the problem. With all due respect to my Is I have numbers host. and you don't? No, no, no. God bless your numbers. Okay. God bless your numbers. Keep your head in your numbers and you'll watch the parade go by and you'll miss exactly what's going on. And that's what happened to Hillary Clinton. That's what happened to the Republican Party. That's what happened to Democrats. They were so concerned about what the polls were saying, the statistics, the number. And the country was like, uh, we're not feeling her. We're not feeling that. We're not over here where you think we are. The numbers are great. The numbers are something that you can come back to and they give you some context. But see, I don't, having been in the room with the numbers, I leave that room very quickly and I get out on the street and I just talk to people because the people behind those numbers are real people. The polls, people lie to pollsters. They lie to them, and which is why I did the questions back to back that I did because it caught them in an unguarded moment where they were honest with their neighbors. They <laughs> lied to me about themselves. When I asked them, would you vote for a black person? If I came up to this young woman right here right now and said to her, hey, would you vote for a black person? The, the level of intimidation, the <laughs> level of pressure, the level of, oh my God, you must think I'm a racist if I say no. You may think I'm just a crappy politician. You may think I'd be an awful fill in the blank. So no, I wouldn't vote for you. Your skin color has nothing to do to it. But when you layer race on it, everyone all of a sudden goes into this, oh, I got to be PC. And we've got to figure out how to get beyond that. So the numbers are good to an extent that they're honest and truthful. But I had five women telling me to my face, I'm supporting Bernie Sanders. And if he's not the nominee, I'm voting for Donald Trump. And I'm sitting there going, I'm confused. I don't know how you do that. Well, and they went on to explain to me how they do that. But I'm just saying, no number is going to capture that. Right, but they matter less than the 77,000 votes that would have made a difference in Milwaukee. How do you know that those 77,000 votes were made up of women like, and men like that? Well, I mean, they're mostly in urban districts, as they say, which is what I, see, I want to get back to the Voting Rights Act. I'm trying okay. to steer us back to that. Okay. Because... You're missing a good conversation over here, I'm just saying. <laughs> No, because I think, because it's weird for me to hear you say this, which I've heard from other analysts too, which is, to me, you're almost saying in so many words this, like we need to, you know, the Democrats need to pay attention to this forgotten white voter. <laughs> Hello. Do you realize, you want a number? You want a number? Okay, well, yeah. I mean, Donald Trump won the majority of educated white women. Of course he did. Go figure, that's a number. All right, you don't want to know Why? You don't want. Well, you I have, don't, a, I have you a strong wanna, suspicion. You why, don't want to understand. Yeah. Okay, after it's economic anxiety, Access Hollywood, right? three, all of that, all of that. 
And all the pro, the women screaming at the top of the, oh my God, we can't vote for Donald. Oh, he's such a misogynist. He's this, he's this, he's this. And they went into the voting booth and they did what? They pulled the lever for him. Oh, Mexicans, rapists, bad people, hate them, build a wall, keep them out, 30%. Oh, David Duke, David Duke, who's David Duke? I don't know David Duke. You know David Duke? Well, you said you knew David Duke. Ah, no, I don't know David Duke. 10% of the black vote. I can't. So you got, we have to understand what the hell's going on out here in the country. What is moving people to do something that you would think is not in their best interest? And I think that's an important thing. Donald Trump has tapped it. He's groomed and created this space. He's groomed this audience. This is his audience. These are people who watched The Apprentice. These are people who followed his Miss America stuff. This, these are people who he's been talking to for 10 years. But it's literally not a majority of Americans. <laughs> I mean, okay. it's... All right. Keep I, telling I, I yourself mean, that. Well... Keep telling yourself that. So I'm just... So I'm fascinated that what you're saying is that Democrats need to figure out the white voter because what I see, when I see Trump doing what he's doing, you know, pushing incredibly unpopular legislation... Um, you know, turning, you know, behaving erratically. Even his own mm-hmm. supporters don't like the tweeting and stuff. Um, what I say, if you guys listen to the show, you probably heard me say this, is that the GOP is acting like a party that doesn't have, that thinks it doesn't have to worry about winning fair elections anymore. That well, they, what if you, if you've They're so gerrymandered the, and so yeah. d- dug into voter suppression, they can do unpopular shit. And, and they can get away with it because they're not, they don't have to win a majority. They only need to win a majority of white votes. That's the only vote they have to worry well, about. Well, okay. I, I take you. That's a fair point. But I have two things to say to that. One. I mean, um, do you honestly believe mm-hmm. if voter turnout among, you know, black and brown people was hi- as high as under Obama, Obama, do you think that Trump would have won? No, I, I don't know. I can't say because I don't know how. I'm not going to presume that because they're black and brown that they would have voted for, for Hillary. That's part of the problem. All right? You presume my vote. You don't get it. I'll stay home. I'll vote for the other guy just to fuck with you. All right? Except that they and, did, and the reality, the reality is that's what happened. That's what exactly what happened. Right. Because, to, as I said many, many times in the 2016 campaign, Hillary Clinton didn't have the relationship with black people that her husband had. And so it was wrong for her and her team to presume she did. All right? Because yeah. I can take you to any place in this country where more than one black person hang out and you, have a, you get an earful of Hillary. All right? So this idea that because they're black and brown and this guy over here is standing there, you know, spewing all kinds of crazy bullshit, that they're not going to vote for him is wrong. It just is wrong. We got the numbers to prove it. And, and the fact of the matter is no one bothered to take the time to include them in the election. You presume their vote. You presume that because Donald Trump said and, what he said well, no, about Mexico. No, 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 no. Didn't presume their vote. Also didn't allow them to vote. I mean, there, there were serious problems with voter suppression in Wisconsin and North Carolina. I mean. Okay. Matters. It does, but does it, but does it change anything? Probably. 
<laughs> I know, I know. I mean, you say voter suppression on the Republican side. I say voter control on the Democratic side. Okay, so I live in well, a county. One is constitutional, one is No, not. no, this I isn't mean, like... constitutional. So let me, I live in a county that is majority black, all right, that is represented by majority white po- uh, elected officials in the state legislature. How the hell does that happen? They're all Democrats. How does that happen? So the district, the congressional districts are drawn such that they're white enough to win the primary and black enough to win the general. We didn't draw that. I was the county chairman. I was state chairman and fought the redistricting map that uh, Governor Glenn Denning drew and won. The court said that I was right. That single member districts where you have full representation that one person, one vote still matters in this country. I won my case, all right? What did the Democrats do after we got further down the road? They started, they, for the next cycle, 2010, they redrew the lines. So you still have this, it works on both sides because political institutions are political institutions for a reason. The self-preservation is the only thing they know. So you're right, you got voter suppression. I've screamed from the mountaintop. Republicans stop with the dumbass trying to... F- Fix the law to keep people from voting. I've always advocated. I'm not afraid of your vote. I want you to go vote. The responsibility on me as a party and a political leader is to convince you to vote for me and my team. And if I fail at that, if I screw that up, that's on me, not on you. And that's, that, that's the lesson of 2016. It's the lesson for Republicans every day, and I, and, and, and I think for Democrats as well. So I, I'm beyond excuse-making. I, I want to get to the core of why stuff doesn't work the way we want it to work, the way we need it to work. And I have to be honest with you, a lot of it resides with us. You know how I know that? Because when I look at the numbers, the numbers tell me that the United States Congress is just a hair of a few points more popular than a cockroach. And yet, what's going to happen next year? You're going to go back and you're going to vote for every last friggin' one of them. Right? Because that's what you've done. You bitch about the Congress, you bitch about the Senate, you bitch about your elected officials, and then you go to the voting booth, whether it's gerrymandered, whether it's rigged, whether it's suppressed, and you vote them back into office. So what do you, th- what do you think they're learning from that voting behavior? They don't need to manipulate the system because we as voters give it to them. We give them the ultimate control. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Uh, Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. 
That's right, for free. Just go do it for free, for free. Maybe you're just thinking about hiring. You can post a job for free, see what happens. You might find the perfect candidate. In fact, you will find the perfect candidate. Uh, their algorithms work amazing. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. You are weirdly the most optimistic and pessimistic person that I've interviewed in a long time. That's what you call it's a realist. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> you are both, the glass is ha- half empty and half full. Um, Depends on the day of the week and right. who's talking, right? Well, I want to get back more to like what we can do here, yeah. right? So do you believe that Trump is an existential threat to American democracy? God, that's putting a lot of weight on him. Well, he's the president, so. <laughs> no, but see, it, see, if someone who had intellectualized what we're seeing and what we're having play out, all right, um, I, I'd say part, partly yes to the extent that there are individuals around him who have kind of worked that side of his brain, which is why I've always talked about the Bannon piece and would tell people particularly you've seen it and you heard it right on tv you know bannon's out no he isn't he's here mm-hmm. bannon doesn't need to be in the white house he doesn't need to be in the building bannon spent bannon was never going to be there more than eight months to a year anyway you need to get the lay of the land what did he tell us again they're telling us what they're going to do right you remember the phrase deconstruct the administrative state what did you think the administrative state meant? I'll wait. <laughs> right? The power of the presidency? I don't know. I mean, like... What? Deconstruct... Oh, the BPA. The, yeah, the regulatory, it's not, it's regulatory not, state, it's not, not administrative it's state. It's not just the administration of buildings and processes. It's deconstructing what you believe in. What do you think fake news is? is deconstructing your faith in a media that's going to deliver something to you that you can trust. And so this deconstruction, so my point is, I don't know so much if that is Trump sort of manipulating that. I don't think it is. I think what what happens is he is an effective mouthpiece for a lot of that. because, okay, I'll give you a good example. DACA. DACA. I got a whole lot of crazy uh, noise when, two weeks ago, when this whole DACA thing started. I made one observation. The President of the United States does not want to repeal DACA. <laughs> Everybody went, what? You already tweeted, you saw it. No, he doesn't. Because I listened to the man. I listened to how he talked about it. And when he talked about it, go back, folks. I'm, just, I'm not saying anything that's not out there in public. So you go back in your own objective perspective, replay the tape at the beginning when he starts talking about DACA, and he talks about it as if he's talking about his own grandkids. He talks about it. It's very personal for him. It's, I know. So you laugh at that. But what does the president now come back around on? He's, cut, he's cutting a deal with, with um, Chuck and Nancy. His own grandkids, except for Eric's. He doesn't really care about Eric's. So, yeah. I'm, just, I'm, just saying, <laughs> I'm just saying, don't follow, don't look at the bright shining object. Don't go down the rabbit hole. 
listen to what the man's saying and 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 understand and how he's saying it and when on that issue i i said it many many times at the time now and even even when he had jeff sessions the attorney general go out and announce that we were ending daca what did he do less than eight hours later you remember he tweeted and what did he tweet well, if they don't get this done, yeah. then I'll do it myself. Yeah. And you know what that means? He's going to issue an executive order doing what? Exactly what Barack Obama did. So I just stopped getting into the, the craziest stuff. That, and I just step back and I just look at the dots and I start putting them together. The president is much more of a Democrat than he is a Republican. He's not a Republican. He's certainly not a conservative. Um, he's always he's not a conservative. I don't know. I don't know if he's a Democrat either. No, no. But I'm just saying he has much more in terms of his view of policy. He's a little bit nationalist and a little bit socialist. Hmm. Well, Bernie they put them together. Well, <laughs> Bernie Sanders. But I'm just saying. I mean, he's not. He, you, he's not going to square him in a in a Republican no. circle. All right. So you're going to square him much more in a Democratic square than you would in a Republican. An autocrat square. I mean, I don't. I mean, I, mean, I, yeah, I don't know well, if it's. I don't want to, I mean, part of me doesn't, I don't want to try to say if he's a Democrat or Republican. I'm trying to pin you down about something because I think it's important, right. which is that, you know, I still, I do get existential dread about this presidency. Whether you want to say it's Trump or Trump and Bannon or Trump and Sessions, I mean. That I would agree with you. You know, I guess maybe I shouldn't have just said Trump personally. Like what Sessions is doing at Justice Department is horrifying. Sessions, education. Um, I yeah. mean, the rollback on Title IX. Yep. Uh, so, right? so, so now, yeah, you're still, you're so now we're sitting here and we're telling women in this country that you're the problem. Yeah, you're at fault. As if that experience is not traumatic and painful enough, that we're now saying in our educational institutions that that's you know you're going to have to go prove it didn't happen. You know how difficult it is to prove a negative in this world. So you, yeah, you're right. These various institutions. Um, and EPA too, you mentioned. Oh yeah, I mean, EPA, EPA. Okay, so, here, <laughs> well, so, yeah. so, so now, so now you can just throw your shit in the river next to your building. Yeah, I, it, river's so, on fire. So all of this, and, and look, and I am not a huge fan of the EPA, but I like clean water, so it, it works, you right. know? I, okay, I can suffer through some of the regulation. But it is a process, and I think you're absolutely right in terms of how this administration, and it go, again, it goes back to the deconstruction of the administrative state. The administrative state is not just the EPA and the Department of Education and the Department of Health. It's the very ideal well, what I said what about America existential is. threat to democracy. Right. So that seems bad. Right. Alarming. Right. Half empty. What should we do? So my, my faith, okay, so... No, 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 no. Do. I'm going to tell you. Okay. I'm going to tell you from two different right. perspectives. Okay. The first All is right. political, the one is political and the other is more broad. Okay. We'll start with the more broad. Um, my faith is first and foremost in you. I really do believe in we the people. Of all the words in our founding documents, those three to me 
mean the most because it speaks to how we will govern ourselves, how we will define who we are. Uh, And I feel in many respects in the past we've given up on doing that. And we've allowed others to do it, our political leaders. We've gotten fat and lazy with just electing people and sending them to our state capitals like Austin and sending them to Washington and expecting them to do the thing that we want done. What I do see coming out of this period is a resurgence or maybe the first time it's being ignited since the 1950s and 60s, um, this real open question about who are we? Are we, in a, are we a people who build walls? Or are we a people that really believe what that lady in the New York Harbor says she stands for? So we the people for me is the half of the glass that is not only full, but the most important. And I think it more than outweighs all this other stuff. The question is, how do you then begin to translate that down into the political process? Get involved, use this, keep these open, you know, believe what you see. Uh, happening in front of you, speak to the truth. Um, look, and I know sitting here, you know, God, you come off like a never Trump. I was never a never Trumper. I didn't give a crap about any of that. In fact, I was agnostic on the elections, largely because of the job I had at MSNBC. I tried to be the umpire and call the balls and strikes. Having been inside the tent, I know how they pee in there. Um, and um, <laughs> So for me, it was, it was much more, and I had conversations with then-candidate Trump about a lot of what we're talking about at various points in this campaign, uh, and realized that, no, the 70-year-old man is not going to do anything different than what the 70-year-old man has been doing for the last 70 years. A lot of us had hoped that he would. I think where that hope gets realized is what happens next year and the year after. Uh, Do we sit back and just assume that everyone's going to be so pissed off that, um, you know, things will change without actually getting out of your car or leaving your latte on your desk and going someplace and changing it? So that's one piece. The other piece is the political piece. And on that part, I think there is, as I've said for a number of years now, there's more bottom for the GOP to hit, and it will. Keep digging? That's their, they, they haven't hit bottom, they're going to no. keep digging? Oh, okay. no, baby, no, no, no. And um, you're going to see some of that next week if Roy Moore wins that, that Senate race. Um, you're going to see... In, see the splinters coming off that crash landing um, because you had the establishment in Mitch McConnell and, and the NRSC, the Senatorial Committee, Republican Senatorial Committee, getting behind and pushing real hard. Uh, and that will, will blow up in their face. Uh, and when it does, there's going to be a lot of excuse making, a lot of finger pointing. Trump now is realizing that, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have jumped out there so soon and um, is trying to point Oh, you made me do it kind of deal, but that's not going to be enough. So there's going to be that uh, realization uh, that's going to start coming home, and it really will profoundly hit home 
um, if things don't go well at the ballot box next year. Um, and um, I, I warned against it when I was chairman. Uh, I've warned against it since then. The party has to take its head out of its ass and recognize how much the country has changed and is changing. Um, we cannot be afraid of people because they don't agree with every little box that we check. And um, the strength of this party, you look at environmental issues, you look at health care issues. We all know what Obamacare was, right? It was the Heritage Plan from 1992, yeah. 93, 94. Which, no, it was the Heritage Plan before yeah. it became the Romney Plan. Yeah. All right? It was a market-based Heritage solution. did it to respond to Hillary Care. All right? Romney took it and opposed it in his state, right? And it worked, okay? The president says, well, yeah, they got it, and they created it. Why don't we just take it and... Surely Republicans will agree. And so that, I think, has, is part of the, the, the narrative in the party that is, is going to be very hard for them to overcome. And I think now they're seeing it play out. They, this health care bill, the, the, the Cassidy, Graham, Graham Cassidy bill, I am so glad McCain did what he did. Um, and... He is, he is, in my view, the lion in this Senate um, and has, uh, I know that friendship between him and, and Senator Graham is very tight. You all seen it. You know it um, by, by uh, watching it. Uh, so you know it was hard for him to do from that standpoint, but he did the right principled thing. And they need to stop, the party needs to stop and understand that this is no longer campaigning. This is governing time. And we only have a window of two years to get it right so that we can get another two years. Um, and I think that they're failing those tests. And so I, you see these two competing. I have hope over here, not so much over here. Hope on, on the we the people side, not so much on the political side because there's still more you got to go through. For the woman who wants to look impeccable at work but has better things to do than sift through uninspiring racks of pantsuits, not that there is anything wrong with pantsuits, the solution is M.M. LaFleur. Now, I don't need to personally look impeccable at work very often. I am right now wearing a pair of jeans and an old t-shirt, and that's what I usually get to wear. But, you know, uh, I go on television, I do some public speaking, I travel a hell of a lot. And that is why I love M.M. LaFleur. Their clothing is luxurious and pragmatic, which is sort of a weird word to use to describe clothing. But I think a lot of women out there uh, will know what I mean, or I should say a lot of people that have ever worn women's clothing will know what I mean, because the difference between men's and women's clothing is stuff like pockets, um, what wrinkles and doesn't wrinkle. Uh, does it hold up over time? Can you wear it again and again and again? Like if you're on a trip and is it that kind of luxury that looks good, but isn't so distinctive that people will notice that you're wearing the same thing? Uh, a few different times during a week, let's say. That is M.M. LaFleur. It's beautiful, but not ostentatious. It's very subtly elegant. And it was started by a woman, Sarah LaFleur. She used to work in finance and she had a closet packed with pantsuits. Again, nothing against pantsuits, but she dreamed of a more inspired wardrobe for herself and all professional women that made her feel elegant, comfortable, and office appropriate. 
So she started MM the Floor in 2013 and made it her goal to put fun and ease back into the ritual of dressing for work and to rethink the shopping process altogether. And that's what they've done with the MM the Floor bento box, which is, of course, the bento box is a delicious Japanese lunch, but also a beautifully presented selection of clothes that you will get after you have filled out a quick online survey. And one of their stylists will put it together for you, a bento box based on your needs, your tastes, uh, what you want out of a wardrobe. Are you looking for good travel clothes? Uh, do you need tops with sleeves? Which I, as I've said, I, I do because I have tattoos and people apparently don't like to see tattoos on television. Do you need dresses that are machine washable and have pockets? Almost everything in the MMFR line, honestly, has pockets and is machine washable. Again, awesome, pragmatic clothing. And once your bento box arrives, you have four days to try everything on. And then you keep what you like and you send the rest. It's completely free to try. It is not a subscription-based service. There is no commitment. All you have to do is try it, try it on, send back what you don't like. You can try a bento box yourself. Visit mmbento.com. That's M-M-B-E-N-T-O.com. We're going to open up to some questions. Uh, hey. Hey. Anna, I love your show. I listen to it all the time. Uh, so... I had a quick question, um, Michael. I don't know much your, of your views about God. I know Anna has talked a lot about her faith. Um, you know, I live in a deep red part of Texas, mm-hmm. and conservatism there consists of you know, kind of political minimal, minimalism with capitalism with um, Christianity, and all those things are bound up real tightly. And at the national level, we have like the Paul Ryan's and the Mitch McConnells running things. We don't we kind of pretend like Christianity is not part of what's going on right. on the national stage, but it really is like, I know. Um, Have like you read my, Jack Jenkins' uh, Christian nationalism pieces no, and uh, think progress? That's a big, okay. it, uh, explains a lot. Okay, but I'll ask your question. Check that out. Sorry. Well, what I was going to get at was um, what do we need to do with respect to that, that piece of conservatism? Do we need to turn to it and face it head on and say, um, the things that you're, you know, like the way you're bringing Christianity into the conversation is a, is a problem for our separation of church and state. Do we need to turn the other direction and say, um, like take it on at, at, at a, I guess like biblical level and say, <laughs> this is probably not what God means right. to a lot of people in the country, that kind of thing. Well, that, that, that is a, a very, Good question. It's an important question, and it's a complicated question, uh, made more so by the fact that our politicians use religion as a weapon. And uh, we saw the weaponization uh, back in the early 80s when the compromise was made in order to secure the nomination to put in the Republican platform the abortion plank. Mm -hmm. Up to that point, we had a very libertarian view about those types of issues. Still, you know, you know, my faith was a private matter. Um, it defined who I am, wouldn't define who you are. You may have it, you may not. Okay, bully for you. Um, and then it's changed and it became almost a mandate that you had to sort of fit into this nice little Christian box. Well, I, of course, I raised my hand and go, so what about Jews? <laughs> what about... You know, atheists, what about Muslims, what about... So you have to, you know, as, as a Catholic, 
uh, as uh, a former Augustinian seminarian. Um, that part of my life has, in part in my journey, defined a lot of how I see the world uh, and how I approach problems. And But it came home for me when I stood on the state capitol steps in Annapolis and raised my hand and put on the Bible and swore the oath to serve the people of Maryland and to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the state of Maryland. Uh, And so in the decisions that I had to confront, one of them was a very tough one because I'm I'm very strongly pro-life and I do not support the death penalty because I'm (laughs) pro-life. And uh, in our administration, it was the first time in 25 or 30 years that the state was going to put someone to death. And so the governor, who was very much supportive of the death penalty, um, was respectful of my view and my counsel. And gave, you know, because I'm constitutionally charged, I had to review the case. And I reviewed the cases of those individuals who were on death row, and I went through them. And it was an internal struggle, you know. I'm looking for every reason not to put these people to death, Mm -hmm. you know, because my biblical upbringing and teaching and the teachings of my faith, all of that came in. And eventually I went to the governor and I told him, gave him my recommendation on each of the matters before us. And he looked at me in front of the staff, because uh, I had to do, we were all in a small group talking about this. And he looked at me and he, and he just said, that was wise, it was brave, and I thank you for sharing it. Um, and it let me know in that moment that you can find that balance. You can get to that space and, and not tell someone, you have to be this, you have to think this, you have to believe this. Just do your job. I don't, elected officials does not need to wear his religion on his sleeve. You don't need to go out there and improve how Christian you are or how Baptist you are. That hopefully will be reflected in the policies that you do that support the way people live their lives and how they are empowered to raise their kids with as little interference from you as possible. Uh, and so that's kind of been my guiding post. And in very strong communities where faith is a big part in in religion. Um, I've always just kind of said, let's dial it back a little bit (laughs) because not everyone is playing in the same sandbox with you. And and your responsibility is to everyone on the playground, not just the ones who are in your particular sandbox. And I guess I would say to the extent, like to answer your question, like which should we do? Um, I do think that progressives, it would behoove progressives to become more um, literate in uh, matters of faith uh, and be able to be more inclusive about it and be able to talk about their own faith and also to be able to hear about others' faith um, in a way that's respectful um, and, and also speaks to them. I think that we do need to be very careful about making it a centerpiece of any kind of political argument. Um, but I do think that we could do better in in showing that there's a wide spectrum of beliefs that are accepted. You know, the, the fastest growing religious belief in America is none, you know. So I don't think it's like urgent that, I mean, if we but wait the, long enough, maybe we won't have any conversations about faith at all. <laughs> but, but, um, but to Anna's point, uh, that may be the fast, but the thing about those folks who are checking the box none, 
they will also then check if asked that they're very spiritual. Yeah, that's true. They're very spiritual people. Yeah. So people, you know, the, the beauty of my God is that he lets you find your own way. Yeah. You know? Um, and, you know, whether it's on issues like abortion or any other... Or other, housing or health care. I health, see a great shirt right or, there. Or controversial, any, controversial issue. The one thing that doesn't escape me is the one gift that, above all gifts that I've been given, uh, and that is free will. Yeah. So um, th- that, that to me is, is sort of the, the biggest part of it, is recognizing that everyone has that gift. Everyone has that gift. Whether they exercise it or not, whether they know it or not, they still have it. Because in my faith tradition, God has given them that. And, and so I've got it as an elected official politician, political activist, I have to be respectful of that. I can't tell you you're wrong. I, I, I upbraided um, the, the DNC chairman, who's a dear friend of mine, when he made the statement that if you're a pro-life Democrat, there's no place for you in the Democratic Party. I was like, dude, you just cut out 50% of the country. You crazy? And that's sort of myopic thinking as a result of political pressures is what turns off a lot of voters as well. So, right. Let's go to another question. Hi. Yes. I just first of all, I wanted to thank you both for being here. Um, I'm both an avid Crooked Media listener and an avid SiriusXM POTUS listener. So oh, this is like oh. a nice melding Ooh. of my two worlds. Um, so I just wanted to make this chocolate quick. and peanut butter. Yeah. There you go. Like the the Reese's of politics. Um, I just wanted to ask you both. We've all heard the okay, well, how do we do better? How do we have these conversations? I assume quite a few people in the room listening right now are are probably fairly liberal. I am. Um, And we've all heard that educate yourself, listen to both sides, don't listen to one, you know, one side of the media or or whatever, which is one of the reasons I listen to Steel and Unger, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still find myself in situations, especially, you know, in my personal life, where those conversations still can't happen, right? Right. So beyond the being willing to sit there and listen to, you know, an op- opposing view and have that conversation, you know, sometimes the other side still shuts you down, yeah, right? Do. So moving forward, if, if we are good, responsible political citizens, that we try to start that conversation and, and get shut down, then then how do we move forward and try to shift the landscape if we... I guess, aren't able to have those conversations, if that makes sense. It, no, it makes perfect sense. Um, and I'll put it in, in, in a context that I learned very, very early on growing up in Washington, D.C., uh, and making the conscious decision to be a Republican uh, and to actually go out and start door knocking. And you haven't lived until you've door knocked as a black, conservative, Roman Catholic Republican. <laughs> In D.C.? In Washington, D.C. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's ever going to happen it for is. me. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> it's an issue. And what I learned is, knock on the next door. Yeah. I get the question, why are you still a Republican? because I'm still knocking on doors. I'm still trying to get people to understand that all this bullshit ain't in the space where I am. And so trying to recruit as many people to this space where we can get to rational conversations about important big stuff, for me, is 
my fight. Um, you know, I admired my buddy Joe Scarborough, who's like, fuck it, I'm done. All right? <laughs> Ripped up the paper. And I got a lot of phone calls and emails after that. You next? You next? I'm like, no. I, you know, I'm stubborn like that. And so for me, it's, I believe in the two-party system to the point that I want it to be a multi-party system. I believe in the value of the proposition of uh, what our politics can do that I'm willing to stay inside and fight it out. So whether it's on race, whether it's on the economy, on health care, on a lot of these issues, my, my argument is, yeah, I can go outside and, and throw stones at the party and call it racist and call it this and hate on it, or I can stay inside and really piss people off by getting them to recognize no, this is not the way we're going, which is part of why I had so much trouble as chairman because I, I just I pissed off a lot of people at the same time. And, and, and that's okay. So I guess the short answer is just keep knocking. So that person shuts you down. Turn to the next person because it's the only way you can change. You're not going to change every heart. You're not going to change every mind. But by your example, just know this. Others are watching you and you become an inspiration to them to pick up that mantle and try what you're doing, uh, which is why I go back to the propositional voting. Yeah. I have a slightly different recommendation, um, which it, actually it overlaps with, with mm-hmm. what Michael's suggesting, which is that I think the best way to change people's minds is to live your values. Yeah. That, um, you know, I talk a lot about my Republican in-laws. By the way, husband's back there. Hi. Yeah, that's my formerly Republican husband. <laughs> Um, I'm working on him. I'm knocking on his door. Um, But, you know, we don't talk about politics very much. But I feel like I am doing something for my beliefs by being a principled, progressive person in their life. That they can see someone who they know they disagree with behaving in ways that they also think of as moral, you know. Um, and I, I think there's something to that. One of the things that I've offered to people is the, the, uh, my number one recommendation, if you want to go out and, and do something in the resistance, is actually like go volunteer in a non-political position. I mean, volunteer politics, sure, but go walk dogs, go build houses for Habitat Humanity. Because if you make con- connections with people around an issue that you share and care about and are passionate about, and then you talk about politics... That's going to go a lot That is better. so true. It's going to go a lot better. That's and you get to walk dogs opener. and build houses. So, yeah. <laughs> so fun. You know, good. All right. Uh, one more question. Let's go on this side. My name is Sonia. First of all, I want to say happy birthday. Anna. Oh, thank you. <laughs> happy birthday. So my question is more for Michael, but obviously both of you guys can answer. Um, so I grew up obviously very differently from you. I'm a white liberal woman. So um, I had my days. So just, <laughs> I just, just want to know. Do you I like a good to, glass of Chardonnay? Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> of course. Who doesn't? Um, I wanted to know how you reconcile your race with your party ID, especially in a lot of things that are going on right now, and how what you would recommend to someone else who you know, their ethnicity or race or religion is being victimized by the party. Well, so that was part of the early journey in sort of coming to the party in the first place. Uh, I remember uh, 
1977, in the spring and summer of 1977, um, which is the first election that fall I could vote in. And um, going to my mother and talking about all of this. And my mother uh, is, she's just kick-ass. She's just a hard-working woman, and she's still alive, doing her thing, uh, and very happy. And she still, to this day, will look at me and roll her eyes, so I know I'm good, and, you know, so I'm right in the space. But I went to her, and I was talking to her about this whole political thing, you know, and she's, you know, Democrat, Democrat household. Yes, I had John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Jesus Christ on the wall. Um, and, and so that was kind of the upbringing uh, that I had. And she looked at me, she said, well, you know, don't be a Democrat because I'm a Democrat. Don't, you know, do, she always taught me, don't do what others are doing just because others are doing it. You go out and you figure out for yourself, be your own person. Okay, so I went out and I started researching the party and started learning its history and looking at some of the big figures, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, all of these folks, these, these names that I know in my history book, but it was a whole other side to their story that I was able to get to and explore. And so I remember coming back to her and telling her that uh, that fall, I was going to vote. I decided to register as a Republican. And she looked at me, she said, Lord, baby, why'd you go and do that? <laughs> and that for me has always kind of been the, the thing. Why did you go and do that? And so every time I have to keep answering that question for myself, why did you go and do that? And one of the reasons, and there are many, but one of them was the fact that when I went back and I looked at the history of this party, how it came about, what it was born out of, the fight uh, that, uh, that led it to peel off from the Whigs. It was all about individuals. It was all about the rights of individuals. And they believed so firmly in those rights that they wanted to free black men and women. That then led me to understand and appreciate that the Republican Party is the political home for African Americans, whether we like it or not, whether they want us or not. You can't change that history. You can't rewrite it. You can't undo it. It is what it is. So that was a factor. I looked at uh, the journey from, you know, over time and, and the ebb and flow of, of the political culture and life of this country and where the party has stood sometimes with black folks, sometimes not with black sometimes folks. Sometimes not. But that sometimes not was more recent than it was in the past. Yeah. It's early history that was very different from its recent history. Um, so for me, a part of that was history and understanding that history. This is my place. This is my political home. So why shouldn't I be here? I can't help that there are assholes in the house. I'm sure there are a few assholes in your homes that you know are assholes, right? So this is how, this is how it is for me. I kind of looked at it through that lens and said, all right, I can deal with this. I've, I've run into the racism. I've dealt with the bullshit, all of that. But I also look at what I've been able to do in the party. I've also been able to look at what I've been able to accomplish and the voice that I can try to represent on some critical issues at critical times. Um, and so for me, it, is, it has been part of that historic journey and understanding. Um, and yeah, they have a hard time reconciling my Malcolm X kind of personality at times. Still need to get to the bottom of the Malcolm X part, but that'll be part two. Yeah, part two. Okay. But yeah, for me, it was, it was the history and, and the journey. So when I look at what's happening today, 
when I listen to the president sort of say, well, I don't know who David Duke is, I and mean, I know damn well he does, uh, yeah, it's a problem. And I think you call it out, um, and you make sure, and you make it very clear that, no, this is not who we are. This is not what we believe. This is not what we stand for. Um, now, will there ever come a point where enough is enough? Everybody has that limit. Uh, they do. Joe reached his. I haven't reached mine yet. There are days when I'm close. There are days when I was chairman where I was closer than I've ever been. But I always think back to that question. Lord, baby, why'd you go and do that? And when I start to answer that, going back to what I said you, I get up and I go start knocking on some doors. All right, let's thank Michael Steele. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you. And I also uh, don't want to let this time end. Um, if you're a regular listener to the show, you might be familiar with my dad, who's one of my big heroes, and he's right back there. Dad. He had a part in the whole it being my birthday thing. So. <laughs> but you guys are great. Um, thank you so much for showing it. You are all official friends of the pod. Thank you. And that's it for the show. Thank you for listening. As per usual, you can send any questions you have about relationships and politics or politics and relationships or about awkward conversations you've had or would like to have to the show's email address. It is with friends like pod at Gmail. Again, that's with friends like pod at Gmail. See you next week.